Good morning, everyone. Dear friends and colleagues in Washington, D.C., and those joining us from around the world, uh, my name is Purnima Menon. I'm Senior Director for Food and Nutrition Policy uh, at IFPRI. And most importantly for, for today's uh, event, I'm your moderator. I've also had the great privilege of chairing the selection committee that uh, invited Dr. Simone Barquera to deliver the, the 33rd Foreman Lecture today. So on behalf of IFPRI and the Foreman Lecture Selection Committee, I'm really honored to welcome us all today to the 33rd Martin J. Foreman Memorial Lecture, um, which has been hosted at IFPRI since 2002. The Foreman Lecture itself, as many of you know, is named in honor of Martin J. Foreman, who, who served as Chief of Nutrition for USAID in the late 60s and through into the late 80s. Martin Foreman was instrumental in putting into motion almost all that we think about today when we think about the world of global nutrition and of USAID's leadership on nutrition itself. Agriculture-linked nutrition efforts, food assistance and nutrition programs, micronutrient programs, breastfeeding support programs, and so much more. This lecture is a testament to the wide-ranging efforts that are needed to solve one of the biggest global challenges of the world um, and reminds us of the constant need to pay attention to something that is really, truly one of our biggest challenges. It's been a personal privilege for me to take on the role of the chair of the selection committee uh, from Marie Ruel, who's in the audience today and served so ably in that role for so many years. Both Simone and I, as you will hear very shortly, have learned so much from Marie and many other members of the committee. And it was a real honor to, to embark on what has been my first uh, uh, Foreman lecture selection process with her guidance. So thank you, Marie, for that. I'm also so pleased that we have Alan Berg in the room with us today. Alan, welcome. Um, for those of you who haven't met Alan, uh, you, you need no introduction. But Alan worked uh, very closely with Martin in the old days and initiated this lecture series in the first place. So it's wonderful to have you here, Alan, as well. And also my gratitude to you for, for the, uh, the kindness and the guidance through this process. Um, I also want to thank and acknowledge the, the other members of the selection committee, Mira Shaker, Marsha Griffiths, Kelly Stewart, Marie, of course, and, and Martin Lane. Uh, now, the Foreman Lecture is a real opportunity to offer us what are often, often overlooked perspectives on the challenges that, that, um, that face us. Um, those of us who work on nutrition and many other parts um, of you know, the, wor the world of food systems end up often squirreled away in the little details of the work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. The Foreman Lecture speakers, each luminaries in their own right, have had the unenviable task of actually waking us up uh, offering us different perspectives and, and challenging the ways in which we see the world. They've reminded us of the urgency of action, of the importance of curiosity, and have often really brought novelty to their perspectives um, of how we should see the world of nutrition as it evolves. Um, and on a topic as crucial as nutrition, which really is an ever-moving challenge, I think we are forced to keep up with the times. And, and beyond that, really, we, you know, it's really important that we are that we look far um, ahead. In today's lecture by uh, Dr. Simone Barquera, who I will introduce more formally a little bit later, we'll be reminded of the complexity of the world of tackling non-communicable diseases, the challenges of transforming food systems uh, to enable healthier consumer choices, and really both the barriers and the opportunities that we face 
as we interface in this world between consumers, government policy, food industry, uh, food environments, and beyond. Before I introduce uh, the speaker, I also want to extend my gratitude to USAID for supporting the lecture itself uh, today. Thank you, Kelly, um, in, in the role that uh, Marty Foreman, I think, had many years ago. We are, we are thrilled to have you here as well, and we'll hear from you uh, in a moment. Um, I know Yo will also formally welcome the, the Foreman family, but we are incredibly privileged to have so many of you here uh, joining us, and I'll, I'll say a word about that later as well. Uh, without further ado, let me hand over to IFPRI's Director General, Yo, Yo Swinnan, uh, to welcome us all and, and take this forward. Yo, over to you. Good morning, everybody, um, or good afternoon in uh, different parts of the world. Good evening. Um, it's a great honor for, uh, honor for me to uh, say a few words here. Um, first, I want to thank Purnima for the work that she did on, uh, on the committee, but more generally, I think, under Marie Ruel's leadership, um, if re uh, nutrition research at IFBI has really flourished, or in the CGIR more widely. And I'm, uh, I think it's been it's in good hands now with Purnima taking the leadership for taking this forward in the future. Uh, welcoming you to the 33rd annual Martin J. Formal, uh, Foreman Memorial Lecture. It's the first one for me, at least, to do it live. I mean, in the previous ones, I was sitting behind a computer screen, so it's really nice to see people in the room here. Uh, our lecture this year is on uh, policy approaches to tackling uh, obesity and non-communicable diseases in uh, in Mexico by Dr. Simon uh, Barquera. Um, I think everybody uh, is really looking forward to this uh, lecture because I think it's a, it's a major issue um, in the world today in, in malnutrition uh, in the world. Um, IFPRI has hosted a formal lecture series since 2002, as Purnima already said, and it's made possible by the continued uh, commitment to the series by USAID. Uh, I also very much like to express my uh, gratitude and my appreciation of the Foreman family being here today with us. As uh, Punima already said, we are really appreciate you uh, being here so uh, generously. Uh, Martin's son and daughter are here with us and other members of the family. And so we are very grateful for your participation in this long-standing celebration of your father's incredible achievements. Um, Dr. Foreman headed the Office, the office of Nutrition of, at USAID for more than two decades, and he did um, what is assessed as revolutionary work in bringing attention to a multi-sectoral approach to nutrition, one that includes agriculture, education, and health. He was critical to the establishment of the United Nations Subcommittee on Nutrition and other important micronutrient initiatives, as Purnima already uh, mentioned. And so we, are, we hope to honor Dr. Foreman's legacy by progressing the global dialogue on solutions to the triple burden of malnutrition. And of course, by providing uh, evidence, both in terms of what, is, uh, what are the causes and what are the, I guess I pushed the wrong button here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to undo this, so I'm, I'm not touching anything anymore. So um, we know that these triple Burden of malnutrition is composed by undernutrition, micronutrient deficiencies, and increasingly by overweight and obesity. If you look at the numbers of the, the growth of overweight and obesity in the world and the problems that it causes, it's really um, 
very much alarming and uh, and very much worrying in the world right now overweight and obesity affect around 40 percent of adults and 20 percent of children worldwide and we've seen a very strong rising uh, rising rates of, of uh, non-communicable diseases which are diet related not only do we see it in, in, in rich countries, but very much in low and middle income countries as a growing problem. There's a number of reasons for that, which some of which are well understood, some of which are less understood. What is a major problem is how to deal with it, how to address it, and how to improve it. We know that uh, reversing these trends will require healthy and diversity, and sorry, healthy and diverse diets, but the problem is, or one of the problems is, how can we ensure healthy uh, diets and diverse diets to be available and affordable for all people in the world, and particularly the poorest people? So uh, last week we um, launched a book here, which I co-edited with Daniel Resnick. Daniel's in the audience as well on the political economy of food system transformation. And there's a chapter in uh, this book by Dr. Eduardo Gomez, and uh, he was here also to present this chapter where he discusses successes and challenges of three countries in their fight against uh, overweight, obesity, and the related diseases. So in his, and one of them was Mexico, the other one was India and South Africa. And so he concluded, or his analysis showed that in all cases, the complex interplay between governments and regulations and industry and consumers and producers create challenges for tackling these issues. And this was a finding of the book more generally uh, on food system transformation around the world. We know that building coalitions um, to drive reforms and to make changes possible is really important. And so we need to strengthen governance, coordinate global and local approaches, and action grounded in high quality evidence. And that's where an organization like IFPRI and the CGIR come in. Our speaker of today, Dr. Simon Barquera, is the director of the Nutrition and Health Research Center at the National Institute of Public Health in uh, Mexico. He has devoted much of his career on analyzing improved nutrition and related issues. He will talk to us today and discuss his work and that of his institute and his government to address the growing issue of overweight and obesity in Mexico. Clearly, with such an uh, important issue um, which will be the topic of his talk, but also uh, his uh, excellence in leading the Institute and his own research. We very much look forward to hear from you, Dr. Barquera, on the obstacles that Mexico has faced, but I think more generally, we will be able to draw lessons and how to overcome it. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Yo. Let me now call upon uh, Kenan Foreman as a representative of the Foreman family to say a few words. Kenan, if you don't mind, if I will take just 30 seconds. Oh, no, 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 please stay, uh, stay right here. I, th this is, you know, a, an in-person after a very, very long time. I think there's many people in the audience who haven't necessarily met other members of your family. So I was actually just wondering if maybe Sidra, Virginia, John, and Martin, you guys could just stand up just for a moment so we can recognize the whole family. Thank you so much for joining us uh, all today. Um, Kenan, over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pranima, and really thank you, IFPRI and Director General Swinnon, for, for having us. Um, it's, uh, it's a great honor to, to be here, and we're incredibly indebted and grateful to IFPRI for keeping this lecture series alive, and certainly AID. Um, 
it's, uh, it's, it's a great community, and we're really grateful for your support. Dr. Bacara, thank you so much for being here and agreeing to, to, to do this lecture. Um, I know this is a difficult week for many here, but internationally I know that there are a number of people who don't necessarily celebrate Thanksgiving, so um, I, know, I know there are a lot watching. Um, and as, as was said before, there is a selection committee. Um, Martin Lane, uh, Marty's granddaughter, great-granddaughter, um, is now on the committee as well. Um, Marie, um, thank you so much for all you've done uh, over the, the last number of years. Um, also, Mira uh, Shakar, who's um, not here, but she's in Mexico. She's in Mexico. Wow, perfect. There we go. Um, Marsha Griffiths, um, of, of course, and um, yes, yeah, we're, we're incredibly grateful. And Alan, uh, really, this lecture series wouldn't be alive without you. Um, really, from, from its first days, Alan has ushered this series uh, year to year with different homes on, until we found this great home of, of IFPRI and AID, and we're incredibly indebted to to Alan uh, for, for being here. And again, um, family, my two sons are in Europe who are watching live um, and, and uh, couldn't make it back, but um, we are incredibly, incredibly indebted to IFPRI, and, and thank you all so much for being here. Thank you so much, uh, Canon. It's a great privilege now to invite Kelly Stewart to join us and say a few words on behalf of USAID. Uh, Kelly is Chief of Nutrition and Environmental Health in the Bureau, Bureau for Global Health, correct? And she's been with USAID for over 20 years and has served quite a bit of her career in Latin America. Uh, Kelly, welcome. Well, hello. It is, um, it is quite amazing to see so many friends and colleagues in person and after such a long hiatus from doing this uh, lecture in person, so um, greetings to everybody here in the audience and to all of you who are watching online. Uh, my name is Kelly Stewart. I am the Chief of the Nutrition and Environmental Health Division in the Bureau for Global Health at USAID, and I want to start by sincerely thanking the organizers of the Foreman Lecture, um, IFPRI, and the Selection Committee who have come together to make this lecture possible um, year after year, and for also inviting me to provide um, opening remarks. I also want to spend, send a, a greeting to the Foreman family and thank you all very much for joining us here today. It just, oops, I think I touched the wrong thing as well. Um, sorry. Um, it is just really special to have you all here and share in this, um, this important moment and this important lecture. And finally, um, thank you, Dr. Vartkerta, for coming to be with us here today. And we're just very excited to um, hear about your work and learn from you. Um, as, as We've discussed um, Martin J. Foreman um, had a really important leadership position at USAID for almost two decades from the 60s into the late 80s. And to say he played a critical role in shaping the agency's strategic vision for multisectoral nutrition would be an understatement. I think if you look at USAID's strategic documents today and you look at um, where we are currently you can see in all of our work the incredible influence of Dr. Martin J. Foreman um, on what we prioritize and where we are focused. Um, USAID has had a longstanding commitment to enhancing the dietary practices and nutritional well-being 
of women and children through multi-sectoral approaches, and that was um, Dr. Foreman's vision, and it continues to be our vision today. Um, our commitment to multi-sectoral uh, nutrition approaches is more robust than ever, and this is exemplified, of course, in the agency's current multi-sectoral nutrition strategy, but also most recently through the establishment of the Nutrition Leadership Council, which brings together leadership across our Bureau for Global Health, our Bureau for Resilience Environment and Food Security, and our Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance, together with our regional bureaus and our policy leadership to really um, look at where the agency needs to go and invest in support in global malnutrition and um, strategic vision. Um, one core element that I want to mention because I think it is so important is that as we honor Dr. Foreman's legacy, um, one of our focus areas is to continue to build on the next generation of global nutrition leaders. And one of the primary ways we've done that is to support the Martin J. Foreman Nutrition Fellowship. This fellowship was created for USAID's mission-based foreign service national nutrition specialists to provide an opportunity for professional growth and to establish a means for exchange between our nutrition experts out in the various countries that USAID works in and supports and our global-based technical staff and leaders to have the uh, necessary exchange to carve out the vision for where we need to invest and where we should prioritize our work in um, multi-sectoral nutrition. Um, I'm delighted to announce that after a four-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are now poised to restart this fellowship now in 2024. So we're, we're really pleased to welcome again in this coming year our um, Foreign Service National colleagues um, to join us under the Martin J. Foreman Fellowship. Growing our, our cadre of nutrition leaders is more urgent than ever. Over the decades, there have been, there's been significant improvement in global nutrition. I think we often forget that. Um, there are so many challenges. Uh, we often do not take a moment to really uh, recognize and um, celebrate the achievements. But as we know, the challenges continue to be many, and the face of malnutrition continues to evolve. And there's much work for us to do together. Um, so with that, I am just pleased and honored to be here in representation of USAID. I'm humbled to follow in the footsteps of Dr. Foreman at USAID, and just very grateful to all of you for joining us today, and very grateful to our speaker, Dr. Bartgerda, for coming to join us. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly, for those wonderful opening remarks. Well, it gives me great pleasure to now introduce uh, our speaker for today, uh, Simone Barquera, who, um, as some of you already got the preview, I may have known for several years uh, before this. Um, I first met Simone when, uh, when we were both interns at IFPRI in the summer of 1997. Um, it's fair to say that both of our careers were shaped quite profoundly by that summer of 97, we spent in neighboring offices working with Marie, but on very different uh, topics. You know, I spent much of my career focusing on maternal and child undernutrition in South Asia. Simone ended up spending much of his career focusing on over issues of overweight and obesity in Latin America. But in uh, we were both, you know, that, that's when we first met. Uh, but Simon uh, was doing his PhD at, at Tufts University at the time in, in nutrition. He's an MD 
um, so a, a doctor and then a PhD uh, from Tufts. He's a member of the Mexican National Academy of Medicine, the National Academy of Sciences, um, and has probably an unbeatable um, publication record, at least of many that I have seen. I, I hear that you have more than 360 uh, academic publications, Simone Weir. Um, it's just uh, quite incredible how prolific you are as a scientist. But perhaps most, um, with much relevance for today's talk, I, I think it's really worthwhile emphasizing that a lot of Simone's work has been in bringing that science to policy. Uh, he has participated in, in the development and the evaluation of policies for obesity and NCD prevention and control. And in that work in particular, uh, beyond the science itself, his work has been recognized with numerous honors, numerous lectureships, uh, and numerous awards, both globally and in Latin America. Um, the Martin J. Foreman lecture, Simone, we are thrilled that we are able to add that uh, as yet another feather to your cap, we, we hope. Um, he currently serves as the director for the Center for Research in Nutrition and Health at the National Institute of Public Health in Mexico, and very recently became the president-elect of the World Obesity Federation. Um, so I'm you know, really thrilled to welcome you to, to uh, give us the lecture today. You have about 30 minutes, uh, and then we'll have ample time for question and answer uh, where people can get to you know, engage with you and ask you questions about your experiences, both in science, in policy, and in the intersect between science and policy. Thank you, Simone. Welcome. Thank you very much, Purnima. It's, it's uh, such a pleasure to be here uh, today. I am uh, very honored to, to give the Dr. Martin Foreman Memorial Lecture. And uh, I have to say that I was very inspired when I uh, was reviewing the work and the legacy of Dr. Foreman, uh, particularly what he did in Latin America in the area of breastfeeding and with child nutrition. And this is what uh, we work for at the National Institute of Public Health. So. Um, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Also, I would like to thank uh, IFPRI USAID, Purnima Marie, for the invitation. Um, this picture uh, is the, the last time I was here at IFPRI, that was uh, 26 years ago. I, I remember very well uh, because my, my daughter is 26 years of age. She, <laughs> she, 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 just, uh, she was born that year. And you can see there uh, Marie, and in the side is Purnima. Those were the times in which we did not have digital cameras. So you, 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 you find out one month later that the Purnima was not really there, but <laughs> <laughs> completely. But um, uh, yes, it was very important for, for me, uh, the opportunity to be here. It was recommended by uh, B. Rogers, my advisor at Tufts, and she talked with Ma uh, Marie, and then she, uh, B. Ro Rogers told me, you need to go there, you will learn a lot from Marie. Um, she's a very uh, good epidemiologist with uh, met, uh, she knows a lot of methods, and she will, uh, she's also interested in Latin America. Uh, and something that happened in that uh, summer is that, um, she introduced me to, to the person in the uh, National Institute of Public Health with which uh, I worked for the, the next 25 years, which is uh, Juan Rivera, a classmate of Maria at Cornell. So, so it really changed my life. Um, I, I need to declare that I have no conflicts of interest related to this presentation. Um, my, my sources are uh, from uh, organizations that uh, uh, 
fund research, and this is important to say, and you will see why in the rest of my presentation. And um, I, I, want, I would like to tell you a little bit of what we do at the National Institute of Public Health. We are a government agency. We, we depend of the Ministry of Health. So we don't have like a, our own agenda. We are um, a think tank, but also we respond to requests, to needs of information, and um, we support the decision making of the Ministry of Health. And this is special because our research is uh, mission-oriented research, but uh, the agenda is not always uh, decided by us, but is decided by the government. And this is one of the first uh, results that I have when I went back from IFPRI to, to Mexico. Uh, I was invited uh, to work in, in a case study to document the transition, the, the nutrition transition in Mexico, and that was for a special number that Barry Popkin was organizing. And you can see either Juan Rivera in, in, the, in the left, and I am in the right, and we are receiving a, an award for that uh, paper. And w the, the, one of the most interesting findings of that paper in, in, in the beginning of the millennium was that uh, we found that uh, in Mexico there was a very high uh, intake of soft drinks. This has not been documented before, and it was uh, something that uh, was one of the factors that we were exploring as possible drivers of, of the non-communicable disease uh, epidemic at, at that time. Other, other thing that we uh, documented at that time was the increase in diabetes uh, mellitus mortality. Um, at that time, Mexico was perceived, even inside Mexico, as uh, a country that had a lot of uh, problems of malnutrition, undernutrition, micronutrient deficiencies, stunting, child stunting, etc. But uh, little have been described about uh, how were our uh, non-communicable disease uh, problems. So uh, when, when we published this and we, we put the mortality trends in the U.S. for diabetes and Mexico, um, it, uh, Decision makers were uh, really not believing this in Mexico. They were very surprised. They, they, they perceived that the diabetes mellitus was a problem for the U.S., but not for Mexico. And uh, it took us a lot of time to publish this. Um, it was very questioned. Uh, and then 13 years after that, we published in The Lancet in the Global Burden of Disease this, this paper about Mexico. And as you can see, the number one factor, risk factor for uh, burden of disease in Mexico is high uh, fasting plasma glucose. So, uh, and you have nine out of the 17 risk factors that have to do with nutrition. So in a very small period of time in the 90s, probably related to the uh, free trade agreement and other uh, events, we started to have a transformation of our food system that increased our uh, prevalence of non-communicable chronic diseases. Right now, we have more than 70% of our mortality due to non-communicable chronic diseases, more than 140 deaths every year f uh, for, uh, from di diabetes. In the 80s, it was 40,000 deaths. Now it's 140,000 deaths. And more than 40,000 of those deaths are attributable to sugar, sweetened beverage consumption every year. We are one of the countries that has the uh, highest intake of sugar sweet, uh, of ultra-processed foods, these foods that are created in factories, not, not real fresh foods. And um, the Organization for Economic Development has estimated that this uh, um, has a more than 5% of our gross domestic product as health uh, associated costs. So, so what, what we have now is um, 
what we call a toxic food environment with very high consumption of ultra-processed products, and this is basically all around the country, even in the more remote areas, in rural areas, in areas in which there is no uh, access and roads, we, you still have these kind of uh, products. Um, these come also with promotions, with strategies to be attractive to children, with uh, gifts, with discounts, uh, with advertisements, and with other um, uh, strategies to make uh, have high consumption, high consumption, and uh, even in the most remote areas in which uh, Spanish is not the language, you can find in Mexico very aggressive marketing targeting vulnerable population, and it's the case in Chiapas and many other states. Um, so ultra-processed foods are replacing fresh foods, fresh meals, and traditional diets, and we have uh, a lot of uh, healthy foods that are sustainable, accessible, and affordable in, in Mexico. So we think we need to promote that, and we, we think we need to revert this trend to eating ultra-processed foods. Um, one of the important discussions is that uh, eating healthy is very expensive. Uh, some of the work that we have uh, developed in Mexico, this is a, um, a graphic of Carolina Batis from our institute, show that the current average Mexican diet is, is more expensive uh, than the, what will cost the Lancet Eat Diet recommendations in Mexico. And the main difference between the cost is explained by uh, meat, obviously, by meat products, but also by uh, sugar-sweetened beverages and by discretionary food. So if we are able to reduce ultra-processed products and meat, we could have uh, even more healthier diets in, in, uh, and revert uh, this problem. Uh, now, when we talk about the obesity prevention toolkit, um, basically what we have is a number of cost-effective strategies that uh, you can find in a review around the world that are um, such as fiscal measures to uh, health taxes, regulation of marketing directed to children, school interventions, counseling, front of package warning labels, regulations at point of purchase, etc. And these are uh, recognized as uh, cost-effective, and this is in which we have focused when we try to modify the, the food environment. There is also these ones in green, mechanisms to prevent uh, industry interference in education, research, and policy development and evaluation, which we think is very important, and we are trying to put this in the table in the discussions and in the policy. Uh, and then breastfeeding promotion and protection enforcement of the WHA code for marketing of substitutes. I think in that one, um, um, Dr. Forman will be really disappointed with what has been happened because he was concerned about this since the 60s and, and we still uh, do not have good results. And the only reason I can find for this lack of result is uh, maybe four companies that have a lot of power and that are always neutralizing the, the, the messages of what we need to do with breastfeeding. And this is, this is very important. And then the future, I think the future is, and um, you at IFPRI and, and many others here work a lot on this, the food uh, system transformation, the, uh, how, how we need to go back to these concepts of multi-sectoral collaboration and uh, planning and, and try to strengthen the capacity uh, for food system monitoring and evaluation. So this is more or less the obesity prevention toolkit. So, so my presentation is not discussing like a, an abstract uh, 
the theory of policy and how with a theory of change we are going to solve, but more how we are, have been trying to implement these isolated strategies and then how we are trying to articulate them in a national plan. So these are, uh, this is what we have been doing in Mexico. We basically have three stages. In the first one, at the beginning of the millennium, we were trying to characterize the obesity epidemic. We started to do the national nutrition surveys, and we documented that we had abnormally important increasing in, in obesity prevalence. Then uh, policy uh, makers, decision makers, started asking us, what can we do with this problem? And one of the first ideas we had is soda taxes. Let's put soda taxes, and we proposed that in 2003. But uh, the first time it was approved was until 2014. So it took us 11 years to, to be able to convince the decision makers and the policy makers to, and, and, and also to, to, to contrarrest the uh, economic power to implement the taxes. Other um, thing that we did is in 2007, a joint workshop with the National Academy of Medicine in the United States to identify solutions for ob obesity, child obesity. And then uh, we mentioned the option there of putting front of package uh, information to, to improve choices of, of this prepackaged food. And this was proposed in 2007. But in Mexico, this was implemented in 2020, so also it took uh, 13 years uh, to implement this. And then in, in we, we also had some policy wins. Uh, so the, the first one will be the, the soda taxes, but in, in the last uh, years, we are having something very vibrant. Uh, many uh, lawyers, decision makers interested on doing things, so we, we are having a new law at schools, a new law for the right to food that includes some ideas or concepts of multi-sectorial collaboration at the national level. So the, the first pushbacks that we, we have was in 2008, for example, the government asked us, okay, do something to inform people about how unhealthy are the soda uh, the soft drinks. So, so what we did is a healthy uh, hydration recommendations with an international expert panel, and many people from around the world help us to write these these recommendations. Then we printed uh, um, hundreds of thousands of posters that were going to be distributed at schools and the Ministry of Health. But this was stopped by um, by the corporations in in a, just in a meeting at the presidential offices, and it was all stopped because it was not convenient for, for industry. Um, so this was one of the first pushbacks that we had. Then in 2010, the, the institute was uh, commissioned to do the national obesity prevention policy. I was coordinating that effort at my institute, and we, we, ha we were designing 10 objectives, but uh, at some point, the industry also pushed in, in the presidency and in the government, and the, the national policy was replaced by a national agreement or consensus uh, for healthy nutrition in which they participated, and obviously the, the objectives did not reach any result, I have to say. And um, in 2014, the food industry uh, designed or in convince the government to implement the GDAs. These are the, the, uh, the information, the front of pack information system that was developed by food industry and that is in almost all the products in many countries. It's a numeric system, it's very hard to understand. And um, it was against our recommendation because we, we wanted uh, something, something else, something with evidence uh, of, 
of uh, impact. So our first uh, big win, I, I, I will say, is was to implement solar taxes. That was in 2013. It was an excise tax, only 10%. It was because we had a window of opportunity. Um, the oil prices were really low, and the government needed re revenue, so they were really looking for uh, opportunities to increase taxes. And this had all the support of civil society. We have. Uh, we have funding from, from uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies to develop a strategy between academia and civil society, so that was also very important. And there was a lot of universities and the Ministry of Health pushing for the solar taxes. So the government took it. They even put uh, an additional 8% in junk food, other non-liquid junk food, and it was implemented. And we were able to evaluate this in 2014 and 2015 and um, documented a sustained reduction in consumption of about five liters uh, per capita per year. It's not much because we consume about 165 liters per capita per year. So, so five liters is not much, but I imagine the, the amount, the hundreds of tons uh, uh, reduced in hundreds of uh, thousands of tons of sugar reduced in consumption every year with this policy. Uh, after these uh, uh, published papers, more than 30 countries around the world implemented solar taxes too. So it, I think this was one of the big wins that we have. And the other one in which I am going to talk a little bit more is um, um, during the last four years we have been working in this initiative. Uh, to uh, implement warning labels. Uh, we had uh, previously these GDA labels that were created by junk food industry in Europe. They don't have any evidence of working, not even in developed countries. Not, not even in developed countries. And instead of that, uh, we, we took a model of the Chilean warning labels. These are oc black octagons that say high in sugar, high in fat, and high in sodium. We, we replace the word high in for the word uh, excess, because high in in Mexico is good, is, is positive, like high in vitamin C or zinc. So we don't want to say high in sodium and having people believing that that's good. So we, we, we replaced for excess, and then we added uh, uh, two legends, one saying it has a, a non-caloric sweetener, so it's not uh, recommended for children, and also it contains caffeine, it's not recommended for children. So this is our system. Many friends tell me, oh, this is not going to work because uh, people don't like it, or in the U.S., they say, people in the U.S. don't like that kind of system, but uh, that's the purpose of this kind of system. You, you are supposed uh, to not like it. You, you, you need to see it in the, in, in, in the processed food and say, yeah, I don't want to buy this. So, so that's, that's something that needs to be included in the evaluations, like you, you don't want, uh, and this is the result. What, what you end up having is the natural fresh food and then you have some products with different degrees of uh, warning labels, and you know now that very easily, from very far away, without reading, that there are products that have five warning labels or, or four warning labels, and you know they have trans fat, they are high in sodium or salt or sugar, uh, sugar or fat. And also we, we regulated the, the, the contents of the front of pack. So for example, in 2019, our front of pack of the cereal box looks very similar to what you have here. Like you have a, a NBA star, sports celebrity, and a cartoon character, and then they have a claim that it promotes your, your performance, your physical performance. It has vitamins. It has these numbers with a lot of nutrients that you cannot interpret. It has invitations to engage in, in 
in the internet for children's uh, for children. So so from that we have been migrating to what we have now is not perfect yet. We want something even more plain. But in 2022, they have the two warning labels. They don't have the cartoon character. They don't have any positive claim. If they have warning labels, they cannot put any positive claim in this junk food product. Um, and this has forced a lot of uh, reformulation. So you can see down, there's one in 2022 that is the reformulated product. And it, that one has the cartoon character, but that one has 75% less sugar than the original product. So if you, you want to have it, you, you, you need to cut. I mean, it's not possible to have a product that is almost half of its weight in sugar and promote it to children for uh, improvement of their performance, physical performance. Um, this is how the products look now, now in Mexico. This is a can of Coke. It will have four warning labels. And there are products that have five warning labels, like these ones. And um, industry said it was going to be a, an economic problem and also something in which they will have to um, the, do research and development for years to, to comply and to have products without the warning label. So they said they will have to take like five years to do this reformulation. On reality, the same year that, that we presented the regulation, most of the companies, the, the, the main uh, companies around the world, uh, presented uh, news uh, releases saying that they were almost complying with uh, a, a, big imp uh, a big part of their uh, portfolio of products with the with a reformulation so so um, this is just to say that uh, these uh, arguments that they need time to reformulate is uh, we, we prove that that was not true and you can see this example for example this is a product uh, for children from Nestle and it says 75 percent less sugar and it doesn't have the warning levels anymore and they 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 are very proud but they, on, um, on reality this pro product probably will not exist in the in Mexico without the warning levels and we have a lot of examples of this kind of products. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have been evaluating before and after in the food industry, and, and the results are very encouraging. I am only showing you this preliminary result, but in almost all uh, the categories, the reduction in kilocalories, the reduction in fat, in sodium, and in sugar can be observed before and after the implementation of the warning levels. In Chile, they evaluated the, the impact on consumption, and that they found that the, the, there is a reduction in the calorie consumption, particularly of sugary beverages. And it was about 30 calories, 30 kilocalories and, um, per capita. So, so that, that, that was uh, an important result. For them, it was more important the warning levels than the soda tax that they implemented at that time. So, so using this information, this expected reduction if we have something similar in Mexico um, we try to predict what will be the impact on obesity uh, reduction so um, we use 36.8 kilocalories because we think it's uh, a better uh, warning level system and also we have other additional elements and we found in this paper that after five years of implementation if industry doesn't do something to um, to neutralize the impact, you could expect a reduction of 1.68 kilograms in the distribution of weight, and that will be equivalent to 1.3 million cases uh, reduced of out of obesity and 1.8 billion savings in direct and 
indirect costs. So this is more or less uh, what we hope to find. Obviously, um, as you as you know, industry will not be static. They will be trying to respond, and they don't want to uh, reduce the sales of this kind of product. So so this is not that easy. As a matter of fact, uh, we have. Uh, faced a very important industry response over the years. It started with high-level meetings in presidency with other administrations. Uh, they impose, for example, these observatories in which they have participation and voting. But now, in, in this uh, government, they, they, they are not that active. Uh, the government has uh, tried to, to be free from this kind of conflict of interest. But still, we have intensive lobbying at the Congress media campaigns to neutralize and to communicate other things about the warning levels, a lot of interference in the discussion of norms. And we had to respond to even to the World Trade Organization uh, uh, request of information because uh, they, they, they had some tactics to, to stop the warning levels there. And right now uh, we are facing 200 demands at the Supreme Court and we at the Institute of Public Health, we are helping them to respond each one of them. So, so it's, uh, it's a lot of work. So we are not thinking what is the next stage in our policy program. We are very busy uh, defending the soda tax, defending the warning levels, and trying to, to develop evidence. In, in, in the junk food industry, um, th there are many tactics to, to neutralize uh, these efforts. So uh, this is one of the classifications, like in delay, divide, deflect or deny. So, so they, they, they love to delay. They, they say more time is needed to clarify concerns. We need more evidence, and this is happening even in the U.S. many times. Uh, or to divide, saying uh, there are other systems, or saying this is not the problem, uh, deny. Or to deflect, for example, saying the impact of unemployment and economy will be huge. This is, this is not a good idea. This is uh, one of the responses we developed when, when they were saying that the soda taxes were going to affect the economy. We show, uh, and particularly for, for people in commercial establishments and, and for the sugar sweetened beverage industry, and this is after, before and after the tax, and th there was not um, this, this damage that they were claiming they were going to have. Um, also, they say more evidence is needed to adequately implement a national policy, and here our strategy was to develop three committees, a national committee of experts, an international committee of experts, and a an, an Latin American committee on implementation. And we have letters and reports from, from all of these committees to give uh, to the decision makers to demonstrate that it was supported internationally and that there was enough evidence at least to take these decisions. Also, they say, for example, food products directed to children are safe. So we, we, we can compare and show that food products directed to children are equal to the other products or even worse in some ingredients like sugar or sweeteners. And we have done that for many uh, products. And, and then they say the new warning levels are not being used, are not effective, uh, are not being used by the population. And we have a lot of information about that. We have a virtual cohort uh, in which we have been um, following the responses from, from 
parents to the warning labels. Also in the National Nutrition Survey, we explored if parents use the warning labels or not, if they have changed decisions based on the warning labels. And there are very good uh, results that we have been publishing and that are even supporting now this policy in other countries like uh, Colombia, etc. So now let me show you very quickly some uh, pushbacks and some responses from the industry. For example, this is a front of pack warning label and uh, as you can see here, for example, this company, what they do is they have a person in the retail spaces try hiding the warning levels, like, because it's a cylinder, so they just turn it around. They, 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 they are doing these kind of things. Or this is, for example, the cereal boxes. They have the what is called now the dual-sided packaging. So they have the front of pack with the warning labels, but they have an exact same uh, front of pack in the back, and they obviously they put the one without the warning labels. We have supermarkets that sell uh, food imported from the U.S. So let me show you how the Lucky Charms imported from the U.S. look in my country now. This is uh, nine stickers covering all the cartoon characters because we believe that it's not fair to sell this to children with so much sugar and, and to to uh, to try to make it attractive so that the children ask for it. So uh, they have to place a sticker with the tree warning uh, excess warning labels, and then nine stickers to cover all the cartoon characters. And there are other strategies. Uh, for example, since they don't cannot put the warning, um, the, the cartoon characters in the package, they can put it outside in a gift, or they put it inside in the product, like in the middle, in the pancake. They, they have the bear in the pancake. And, and also uh, hiding the with gifts the warning labels. So these are some of the strategies. Um, uh, and now let me let me tell you what we have been doing this last year. Uh, obviously, the the, the uh, what we want at the end is to have a comprehensive policy. But the windows of opportunity have been for particular isolated uh, components of this policy toolkit. So in the last two years, we had a very strong Congress interested on in doing something at schools at the school environment. So uh, we help them to do uh, modifications to the school law. So now uh, any product that has warning levels cannot be sold at schools. Um, and also any product that the Ministry of Health says is unhealthy. Also they cannot uh, put marketing of, of these products at schools. Before uh, all the schools were painted like the, the basketball courts with uh, signs of junk food companies. So this, is, this took a lot of time to convince. There, has, there was a lot of lobbying against it. But uh, as you can see in the, the picture in the right, when the Congress voted, there was no abstentions. Everybody voted in favor. So I don't know. And they, they, they were really against this, a lot of them. But at the time of voting, nobody wants to be there and show that they were against uh, a law that is for the children. So this, I, I think we need to learn to be civil. Uh, to make this more visible. Um, the other thing in which we have been articulating the warning levels is with the dairy uh, dietary guidelines. These are our new dietary guidelines. And um, as you can see below, it says, uh, evita productos con sellos, avoid products with warning labels. And this is important. Uh, we are saying in uh, our official communications that uh, you should avoid these products. And obviously in the center you have water. And all, all other recommendations are um, 
recommendations for uh, uh, avoiding sugary beverages. So we have a, a number of ways in which we support uh, implementation of obesity prevention policies from the National Institute of Public Health. And many are even helping with the narratives to civil society organizations, identifying policy priorities, etc. And um, these are some of the examples of junk food narratives that we have reverted with evidence. Uh, for example, there is no good or bad foods, and we know there are good foods and bad foods. And, and by bad foods, I, I mean ultra-processed foods, not any other food. Um, also, we have uh, help with uh, communication, and this is something that we are not used to do in research centers. We, we think we only need to do research and publish our paper. But when we started to do communication in Twitter, in the discussion of the warning levels, we had uh, 21 million impressions in our communications in Twitter. So we know now that if we are committed and we do some advocacy, we can help support a lot of these policies. Um, now, in the future, and uh, with this I am concluding, um, we have now 36% of obese population, or, or people living with obesity, sorry, in, in, in Mexico. And for the 2030, we expect to have around 45%. Uh, um, so so this, this, this will be terrible uh, because of the impact and the burden that it, this is having. So what do we need to do? Well, uh, with some modeling also, we are, we are seeing that we cannot have the ideal 19% uh, of, uh, of body mass index, uh, average body mass index, or the intermediate on 33, but we can have the plausible, uh, which will be 38. So we need to... Uh, uh, try to not exceed 38 in, by 2030. And oh, there is a mistake, but that, that means having a, a, an increase of less than 1.6 uh, in body mass index uh, every year from here to 2030. And the reduction we need to achieve at the national level is about 40 calories deficit. So um, we, we think we can do that. It's very difficult, but we think that's something that we, we could achieve. This is how it looks in Latin America. Latin America has been very committed to implement uh, policies to transform the food environments. And you can see in red the ones that are top for different countries. But there are six countries with fiscal measures. Uh, Colombia just implemented a 25% tax on ultra-processed foods and soda, which is amazing. Now it will be the gold standard. Warning labels, Argentina just implemented a system based on the Mexican system, but with improvements in the regulation. Uh, healthy schools is also improving. Everybody has very nice sustainable food guides because you don't need to regulate no, nobody to do a, a communication strategy. But breastfeeding is failing really, really bad. We don't have the implementation of the code. And then the, the two, uh, the, the last two ones are, I, I think, what we need to do, to, to do now, um, actions for food system transformation. We're starting a regional network on December, the first week of December, with participation of FAO. And um, we think this is one of the most important things. Try to go back to, to the uh, multi-sectoral uh, nutrition planning. Try to understand uh, that there are structural drivers, and we cannot do anything uh, to tackle this if we don't work in, in, in this uh, way. So this is, is going to be very important. Obviously, the conflicts of interest and commercial determinants of health also will be very important. And the good news is that in December 19, we will have the um, 
the state of the food system worldwide in the countdown to 2030. This is a report uh, in which many of you are working, and uh, here, uh, Kate is here, and many others, uh, Daniel, and people from IFPRI, from GAIN, and from FAO. And this uh, will allow to uh, benchmark countries that are really transforming the food environment in a good way, and also uh, will help countries to identify opportunities in the more uh, multi-sectorial space to uh, make healthier uh, food systems. So in conclusion, and I, I am putting next steps because these are not really like conclusions. It's, it's just what we are going to do. We, we need to do the impact evaluation of the warning levels. This is uh, something that we are working. It's going to be very difficult because in the middle of the implementation, we have the COVID pandemic, so um, our results uh, will be very hard to interpret. Also, to protect, up, update the successful policies, we, we need to live with that. You don't, you just not put a, a policy, you need to defend it uh, permanently and improve it. Then support efforts to regulate new forms of marketing, like the digital marketing. We are exploring and characterizing that, and it's very concerning how uh, all these big companies are moving there, even for, for, for promotion of breast milk formulas. So there is a new report released this month on digital marketing of breast milk formulas by a group in Australia, and, um, and this is something that is happening in Mexico as we speak. And then the ones that I mentioned, multi-sectoral collaboration for food system transformation and commercial determinants of health, those are probably the, the next steps in which we will be working uh, very hard during the next years. So, so with that, I conclude. I, I want to show you a picture of the collaborators in, in our center. Most of the research I show today is done by them. It's mostly young students and young researchers that are very committed and very um, uh, share the value of uh, common good, and they, they, they want to uh, have uh, good results in, in the country, um, and they know that it's going to be a very big fight. Thank you very much. Thank you, Simone. Let me actually invite you to, to join me in these chairs up, up front so we can take uh, questions. Do we need to be holding these or? Yes? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, before, that, that was absolutely uh, amazing. Thank you. Really just uh, an incredible expos exposition, I guess is the right word, of um, proactive, responsive, and incredibly high-quality policy-linked science. So thank you so much for that. Um, before I open up for questions, though, I, I should acknowledge uh, as well Sean Baker as a member of the selection committee of the of the Foreman Lecture. I neglected to mention Sean's name. So thank you, Sean, wherever uh, you are. Um, also just really um, supportive in this journey. So let me uh, open up for some questions in the room first, and then I know we'll have some questions online as well. The floor is open, folks. You'll have to come up to the mic, sorry. And please do introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Kay Schneider. Um, thank you so much, Simone. This was a really fascinating lecture. I'm super curious if you've seen any evidence of trade-offs in these policies, like reformulation, adding in 
other ingredients that you wouldn't want to be there that had been kind of left out of the policy, like artificial sweeteners or things like that, or any evidence of like dumping the unreformulated products into neighboring countries? Um, sure. Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Kate. That, that, that's a good question. I, I, I have some, a, a couple of slides, but I removed them. But yes, one of the things in reformulation is that uh, they are always trying to find like loopholes. So, so uh, there are some sweeteners that uh, you use in very low levels and that can be defined as um, nutrients or, or non-nutrients depending on the regulation. So, so we started to watch a lot of um, allulose, for example, you, you used to, to make products sweeter or um, monk fruit and other, other sugars that are, are not absorbed, but that we don't know what is the effect on the po population. So that's something that we are following up and we want to regulate. Um, the other thing um, is that with um, the regulation of the marketing, um, they are sh uh, marketing in the boxes. They are shifting to other ways of marketing to children, like digital platforms that we don't know. So I think that's an unintended effect that probably is better for them because, like, I don't know how, how many of you know Twitch, but uh, I don't know it. And the, 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 the times that I, I've been with people that is studying digital marketing, they, they don't really know it. And is one of the main platforms for promotion of products on young people. So, so this, this kind of, of effects, we, we need to be like really monitoring. And then um, uh, going to other countries, I, I don't think that's happening. Uh, and it, I think it's the other way around. Like they, 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 they are in Central America now, you, you can see the Mexican products with the warning labels. And even in Costa Rica, they were asking the industry to, to uh, put a sticker to cover the warning labels because they don't want the people in Costa Rica to see these warning labels because it's not a, a Costa uh, a regulation there. So, but yes, there, there are many, thanks. Thank you, Dr. Bartkerta, for your um, excellent presentation. Um, my question is, when you showed the graph with the percentages of people who um, pay attention to the warning labels, uh, for those who are not influenced by them, do you have a good sense of kind of the profile of the people who do not feel influenced by those warning labels and maybe some steps to reach, um, reach those people? Yes. Um, uh, we, we made a very complete questionnaire in the National Nutrition Survey, and many of the uh, people um, that uh, do, do not respond that is not uh, using them is using other other components of the package. So, so people of a very high level, for example, they prefer to look at the back of pack that have all the details. So that's one. Um, uh, the 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 other thing that we are seeing is that. Um, with the other system, with the GDA uh, system, it was less than 3%, the, the, the response of using the system. So this 60 to 80% that we are observing here is, is, is really good. And so, so I, I think um, we have compared like four or five systems in different, even in the national survey in a, in a model, we, we were comparing different systems. And this is the one that has better results in all the, in all the uh, questions. 
presentation. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, Can you introduce yourself as well, though, just for the online audience? You said uh, relatively little about uh, tax on bad food. So what's the Mexican experience in how the soda tax, maybe your experiment with others, worked? And if it worked, how high should the tax be to have any impact? The second question is, of course, we focus a lot on the bad ingredients, uh, like the sugars and salts, uh, which indeed are a big problem. But my understanding is also that a lot of obesity comes from people simply eat too much, push too many calories. So is there also an attempt to, to look at that? As our projections for also dietary, what diets would look like moving forward with income growth and so on. It tends to be that, yeah, that, that people simply eat too much, right? There's an excess of consumption in general. So is there any policy that you've been thinking of to address that? Yes, those are really good questions. Um, for, for the uh, soda tax, um, we, we wanted to have a 20% soda tax, uh, 20%, uh, 2 pesos per liter, so it was 20% uh, at that time, but we, we were only able to do a 10% soda tax, and um, with inflation and some things, it ended up being less than 10%. Even with this, we were able to demonstrate that it has reductions in consumption. Now that uh, other countries have developed better systems, like uh, Colombia with the 25 uh, tax, we really want to do something, uh, review this policy and increase taxes. And I think if, if we are one of the countries with the highest burden of disease for consuming soda taxes, we need to have one of the highest uh, soda taxes in the world also. So uh, I, we, we want to increase it. 20%, so to have it in 30%. Obviously, this is one of the things that is harder to do because uh, the industry that is uh, selling this in Mexico is very powerful, so, so this is going to be very complex. So that's just one, one way to, to see it. And in the other question, it's, it's very interesting because it's true that overeating is, is also driving excess weight, but we know and uh, there is a lot of evidence uh, that uh, ultra-processed foods uh, have this uh, quality in their formulation that makes you want to eat more. So it's the typical example with the soft chips, that with the chips with the, that, that you cannot eat only one. So, so that's because it has like the salt and the fat, and uh, it, it, it drives you to more consumption. And that uh, do, do not tend to happen that much with real food. So uh, in, in one hand, promoting in the new guidelines uh, fresh, um, seasonal, local foods, and returning to traditional uh, Mexican cuisine or Mesoamerican cuisine, I think is, is a good way to do it. Obviously, we need to guide, uh, orient uh, consumption, but I think this is a, a major driver. There are studies showing that having people eating what they want, but in one, uh, one arm of the study, ultra-processed food, and in one arm, natural food, just have different results in terms of, of, of weight. Uh, so so we, we believe that will uh, guide our uh, policy and good results. Let me, uh, let me just take a couple of questions online and then come back to folks in the room. Uh, so I have a question from someone called, called Luis Felipe. Uh, don't know which organization, though, but it's, it's an important question. 
Uh, as you showed, obesity is a structural problem, social, commercial, and political. What other interventions have you suggested or studied to address the challenge? Could you say a little bit about that? Well, uh, th there are uh, many things we want to do, but uh, the, the problem is that um, uh, we don't have all the windows of opportunity, and we, we cannot do all, all that we, we want. But uh, for example, we, we want to improve uh, the networks of, of producers of food and, and to increase availability of, of natural food. We, we think we need a lot of investment in infrastructure for water. So one of our states with more uh, water is Chiapas, and it's a state in which the consumption of soda is like 40% higher than other states just because they don't have the infrastructure for clean water. and because the, the state government policies have not supported this, and, and this is more structural, so, so we need to do that. Then in all the committees at the municipality level, we have um, these organizations that work for infant and maternal and child feeding, and those have a lot of uh, participation of industry. So you see like every month, uh, uh, for example, a lactating room, inaugurated by Nestle with the president of the municipality in some town, or you see a park inaugurated by Coke. And I think this kind of things need to be solved. Like uh, we cannot be um, endorsing these companies that are selling the products that are harming our health. So, so we need to cut that, and that is something that we really need to do at a very high level, like probably with legislation to avoid these interactions. Thanks. I'll ask one more question online. Uh, it's a question from Anna Herford, well known to, to many of us. Uh, so about the reformulation of products where sugar was reduced, has sugar been replaced by artificial sweeteners? Has the mix of different sugars been studied? What are the implications of that uh, for public health? Yes, uh, this, this is also a very good question. I, I, I responded a little bit before, but uh, what, Chile, what happened in Chile is that they put the high in sugar, and all the products for children replace sugar with artificial sweeteners, with non-caloric sweeteners. And we have now a report of uh, WHO and many reports with concerns about non-caloric sweeteners. So um, when we implemented our uh, our policy in Mexico, we put a, a warning label for um, do not uh, not recommended for children for these non-caloric sweeteners. So that solved at least a part of the problem. But uh, yes, there are other uh, sweeteners. For example, they put uh, an enzyme, uh, lac lactase, mm -hmm. in, in milk products, and lactase breaks the lactose and makes the product taste sweeter. So that's th there are these kind of strategies, and there are many, like uh, monk fruit, other, other um, sweeteners that are not artificial and that cannot be considered um, um, non-natural. So, so uh, we, we, we are following that with a lot of attention to see if more regulation is needed. But uh, this is why I think in the future the, the, next, the best advice is just go for the fresh and natural foods, and th that way you skip all these concerns. All right, let, let's come back to the room. Yes, well, um, I know um, Olivia, you had a question, and then please come up to the mic and ask your question after Olivia. So um, my question relates more to the consumption part. I mean, 
you know, people in Mexico as well as in other parts of the world, they do not only consume the packaged good, um, and I think most of the SEO uh, policies are targeted at a packaged ultra-processed food. But we also have quite some high consumption, perhaps, of this bread food from local markets or through repackaging. So my first question is, what is the share of the average consumption in Mexico of those ultra-processed or bad foods from the package? Was those ones that are sold in markets or through other uh, channels? That's the first thing. And then the follow-up question is, what are your policy plans to target that part of the consumption? Mm -hmm. so, so it's interesting. Probably we don't have the, the information, or not that, that I, I know, but uh, let me tell you, for example, from from the National Nutrition Survey, we know uh, how many ultra-processed food uh, a person, an individual, is consuming. We don't know if it was like from the 7-Eleven or from the store outside or repackaged, but we know that it was an ultra-processed food. So we know the 30% of the consumption is of ultra-processed foods, and we know it's very high consumption of, of sugar-sweetened beverages. Uh, and then there, there is this concern by industry that, for example, uh, when, where they say street food is equally bad and you are not uh, doing anything to, to regulate street food. So we have been monitoring now street food, and we are learning a lot. For example, we are learning that a lot of street food is very healthy. We have uh, uh, people selling mangoes and jicamas and very fresh, good foods. And then we, you have also street food that sells ultra-processed food. They sell Coke, so it's, it's not, I mean, industry is complaining about the street food, but it's in, street food is industry food sold by in the street. So, so um, we, yes, so, so, so we, we are trying to, to understand that um, this is one of the things we are monitoring for the next uh, steps, and we want to orient um, um, the consumption of food outside the house and in streets, and we, we think we can propose some interventions to to have also there a better food environment. Hi. Good morning, Dr. Barquera. Thank you for this insightful conference. My name is Jose Luis Torres. I work here at Eat Free, and my, well, my doubt uh, uh, is around the difference between these the results in interventions related to obesity disaggregated by by income so to the best of my understanding in mexico obesity prevalence is basically the same between high income and low income population however uh, according to the recent published uh, poverty estimations in mexico uh, access to nutritious and quality diets has incre has increased However, uh, indigenous people still uh, face high prevalence on, on the lack of access. So my, 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 my question is if there has been at the National Institute of Public Health any difference in results or response or behaviors uh, comparing or disaggregating by, by income. Oh, yes. Um, thank you. This is a, a very important uh, question, also something that, that in which we, we want to uh, work uh, a lot. Uh, we, we still have this double burden and we have uh, a lot of uh, Mexicans that are facing undernutrition and that uh, are food insecure uh, and, and we, we need to work with that. Um, 
uh, one of the things that, that we want is to Im Im implement the, the policies in Brazil for the uh, school breakfasts that, that is locally produced and uh, done in the, in the community with, uh, and is implemented nationally. So th the Brazil is showing Latin America that, that this can be done. That, uh, uh, so uh, we need to, to work on that uh, part. There is a lot of difference, for example, in the use of tools, communication tools for health. So, so for example, the warning labels and these kind of things are used in very poor communities, but, uh, but are more used in, in high-income communities. And also, um, uh, there has been improvement in the access to, uh, to subsidies and social help, but it's, it's not enough. We, we need to do much more uh, to reinforce um, proper child nutrition in, in, in poor communities. Let me just ask a couple of questions online, and then I'll invite you all, yeah? Uh, so I have um, one question from Eric Muhirwa from Rwanda, uh, and I'll combine that with another question from Sharad Taheri, uh, which are both about collaborations outside of Latin America. So the question from Eric is, how can we collaborate to raise awareness worldwide to fight against NCDs in Africa? Uh, there's concern that NCDs will kill more people in Africa than AIDS or malaria probably by 2030. Um, and then the question from Sharad is, again, it's, it's related but really asking about, you know, how does your approach uh, link and, and uh, link to or differ from other countries outside of the Americas and whether you're also focusing on, you know, other drivers of, of obesity. But I, I think this is a really um, important set of questions because it seeks speaks to the importance of South-South collaboration of how countries can learn from each other, how regions can learn from each other. So I was wondering if you can speak a little bit to that. Yes, um, this is something that is uh, of a lot of concern to, 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 to many of us. We have been um, looking at the trends in consumption of ultra-processed foods in countries in Africa and Asia, and it's increasing very fast, even faster than what happened in Mexico in the 90s. So. So this is, these problems that we are facing here are going to be problems in the future for Asia and, and Africa. And we know the, the drivers, we know the policy that uh, helps to reduce, but uh, the, the opportunity is that we, we don't need to wait until it's a very big uh, problem. So, so there are some networks of uh, collaboration that, that um, are helping. For example, in Latin America, we have Colanza, a network of uh, community of practice between civil society and, and academia. And there are similar networks in, in other countries, and, and we, we need to exchange a lot of information. Um, I think the, the food uh, system transformation um, content and the, the report, the, 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 the report to benchmark these countries is also a very useful tool to identify these trends and and try to uh, to make recommendations. And and finally, I think uh, we need to make uh, research and and public health research free of conflict of interest to break the relation uh, that this uh, public health research have with uh, food industry because that is one of the um, factors that uh, makes very slow the, the change and the, and the advancements. And um, we need to, um, yes, we, we need to break this uh, conflict of interest in this type of research. All right, I'll come back to the issue of institutions a little bit later. Uh, Julie? Thank you so much for that 
region oops, uh, with the World Bank. My question actually stems from the last point that you made on um, multi-sectoral coordination and uh, the implementation of policies in the educational environment specifically. Uh, and here, I'm just interested to know some of those details in terms of, you know, who takes the responsibility of implementation, monitoring, compliance, financing, because I think we spend so much time talking and promoting multi-sectoral coordination and, and implementation, but then in reality, it's very complex and complicated and perhaps not reaching uh, the impact that you would want because these roles are not clearly defined. So I'm curious how you did it in Mexico. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, we, we, we are not, uh, um, we don't have a response for that one yet. Uh, we are not doing that yet. Um, I remember when I uh, was studying my, my PhD, that was like the, the, a lot of the publications of Dr. Alan Berg and many on multi-sectoral nutrition planning and the challenges that, 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 that uh, all this uh, coordination have. Uh, there was an attempt in the 70s in Mexico to do a system of agencies coordinating, but uh, it was, uh, it failed. And then for many years, uh, multi-sectoral um, coordination really stopped. And now they are starting again. In Mexico, they form a group that is called Group for uh, Intersectoral Group for Coordination of uh, uh, em Environment, Nutrition, and uh, Fair and Sustainable and Healthy Food System. Something like that. It's a, a long name. And you, you, uh, we are watching again these difficulties of coordination. Who, who is the one that takes the decision? Who is the one that called the others? Uh, who, um, who, who, uh, so, so this is, is very challenging, but the good news is we have now that in an initiative in, in the law, so it is going to become part of the law that there will be an intersectorial group with the mandate of transforming the food systems. This is going to be voted uh, maybe before this administration ends in Mexico, and, and we hope uh, we can advance of, uh, with that, and we will have the observatory, the, the monitoring um, structure to, to see if there are changes in, in, in Mexico. Sure. Good morning. My name is Gwyneth Cotes. I'm uh, with the USAID Afford Project at TechnoServe. And I wanted to follow up on your comments around sort of this conflict of interest issue. Um, from your presentation, I definitely got the sense that the relationship between researchers and, and private industry is kind of one of conflict, one of maybe adversaries. Um, but at the end of the day, it's these food companies that actually have to implement the regulations and the policies. So, so do you see any realistic opportunities then to engage those companies in a more positive way through rewards and incentives? Or do you, you know, like what opportunities do you see for that and, and could it actually work? Yes, um, this is a, a challenging question. When, when we started uh, working in Mexico and maybe in all Latin America, in the Latin American Society of Nutrition, we used to work in undernutrition and micronutrient deficiencies. So a, a natural uh, uh, partner in these efforts was uh, food companies because they were developing cookies with vitamins and with zinc and, and iron and these kind of things. So, so uh, there was a relation in which you don't perceive any conflict of interest. Um, but when you try to regulate them to say how their formulations have to do or that you don't want them to market to children if they have this composition, then uh, what we have learned is that is there is no way uh, they will um, 
give priority to health over uh, their um, revenue. So um, we, we, we tried that for about 10 years. So uh, at least in my view, and I think the, the view of the National Institute of Public Health is we cannot engage with them in decision making. We, uh, obviously, we can hear their concerns, but in another spaces, and it, it needs to be very transparent. And uh, how can we work together? Well, we can work together if they accept that they need to be regulated because they are harming the population. So if they accept that and, and they comply with the regulations, which I think they, they can, they, we, we have proved that they are being able and nothing terrible is happening with their income. So, so um, if we can do that, then, then, then we can work. But I don't think um, there is a way that they can be seated in the decision making as it used to be. And, and, I, and I am really concerned about some of the um, meetings at United Nations in which they have a lot of voice because it's, it's just slowing uh, the, the progress in what we need to, to do. Thanks, Simon. I, I'm going to take chair privilege to ask you, you know, to ask you one question. It's a bit more of a step back and institutional question. Um, I, I think what's really came out from your presentation was the value of the strength of an institute like the National Institute of Public Health and the strength of having, you know, highly qualified, committed, locally grounded scientists who understood the context and you know, were uh, willing and able to do the day-to-day -day work, if you will, of the, you know, the interface with policy. Now, if we think about the future of nutrition and public health in many different countries, those are exactly the kinds of long-term, grounded, high-quality institutes that we want. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on you know, what is it that continues to give and has given INSP and your research groups the, the mandate, the institutional space and, and strength, and what are some implications of that for overall investments in science? Hmm. Um, uh, well, I, I think um, this is a characteristic of, of, of Latin America. It is very uh, like orient social oriented, so I, I think that there is a lot of um, um, values around uh, commonwealth, common good, and I think that that probably is true for many other countries. And I think this is like if you take these views and you you can uh, motivate uh, young researchers uh, to work for these purposes. And I think the young researchers are very different from from like like the. The new generations are very concerned about the environment and are uh, common good and improving the life of, of, of all the people. So, so I think that that's something that that we need to exploit and and to to develop and motivate. And, and the other thing is obviously the funding is very hard. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there we we have models of collaboration that are very nice, such as Informas, this network of for monitoring the food systems around the world, because we did a lot with uh, very little resources, and it's mostly like developing protocols, helping groups around the world to, to evaluate some uh, aspects of the food systems and then help them uh, to publish, and we have that, done that. Um, we have uh, done in the institute, for example, uh, comparisons of the food environment between five countries, in which the only investment is the, the 
platform or the, the analysis that we do at the institute, and then we send the questionnaire to other institutions, and they they collect the information, and, and this is improving um, their productivity. And so, so um, I think these models of, of collaboration need to be um, exploited, and and many other many other ideas, I, I guess. Yeah, no, great, thank you. I, I think the investments in these types of institutions are are critical in and of them themselves, as well as the you know the funding for the day-to-day -day, uh, research. I think we are almost out of time, but if there is an absolute burning question in the room, I'm happy to accommodate that. No, all right, okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Simone. It was a really enlightening lecture, as always. I've certainly I've heard you speak before, um, but every time I hear you speak, I, I learn something new. I, I do think it's worthwhile mentioning because you know you certainly didn't mention it in your uh, in your talk, but we also you know know that a lot of the work that you've you've done has you know come at some personal risk at different points in time. I encourage everyone to read the New York Times article on the targeting of scientists and advocates who worked on the soda tax uh, in in Mexico. It's a it's a really revealing. Uh, piece on you know on the risks that scientists can sometimes face in undertaking research uh, to support the public good. So you know, also want to salute your you know personal courage and your integrity as a scientist in you know sticking with what matters for the public good. Um, on behalf of IFPRI, on behalf of the Foreman family, if I may, on behalf of the selection committee, and really all of us here, thank you so very much for joining us today. Uh, I invite those of you who are here in person to join us outside for an opportunity to continue the conversation. I want to thank everyone who joined us online. The lecture will remain uh, on FP's website for a long time. Uh, <laughs> and um, we'll you know, be happy to have you back here and to support actually more, more such conversations. I think you're right that taking this forward to food systems transformation is critical. We're glad to have hosted you a couple of years ago in South Asia, but I think, you know, as I can see from the online comments, uh, there's a you know, really great need to continue to create dialogue and shared learning across the different regions of the world. So thank you again so very much. Um, thank you. Yeah, this was absolutely incredible. Thanks, everyone. Thank